I appreciated how we started last night, and Mark exposited the first part of 2 Timothy 1, and he reminded us that the, the exhortation to fan into flame the gift of God, and a couple, a couple quotes I wrote down last night from his introduction that I thought were, were poignant for me. He, he said, it's your turn, we're about to hand it off, your time is now. And that was the call to me when I was in college at Muhlenberg back in 2007 and eight, my senior year. And I was reminded by my staff worker that if we don't entrust the gospel, if we don't invest it, you can lose it in four years. And so my senior year, I was compelled to invest this gospel in others. Now the Muhlenberg Fellowship at that point, we had one guy that we really were investing in. So I was discipling him. And one of the things we wanted to work on together was going to church together. So every Sunday morning, I'd wake up, you know, five minutes early because Muhlenberg's small. And I'd wake up five minutes early, drive over to Prosser Hall, and I would wait. And I would wait. And I would wait. And I'd make a phone call. No answer. And then I would leave for church alone. And I would wonder, is this entrusting the gospel thing worth it? This was many Sunday mornings of my senior year. And he can barely get out of bed on time. And this is who I'm entrusting the gospel to? The, the, the fate of the fellowship to? Is this worth it? Now, this is a small thing compared to what we will see Timothy face, and Mark alluded to it a little bit last night, but I think that very question is the same question that we often ask, is investing the gospel in people, is disciple-making worth it? And the text we're going to look at this morning unequivocally says, yes, it is. Because not only are we called to fan into flame the gift of God, but we have a spirit, not of fear, but power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And if you want a main point for our time this morning, it's on the top of your outline on page 13. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but share in suffering through persevering by God's means of grace. Let me pray and then I'll read our text for this morning. Father, you are so great and it is by your grace and your grace alone that we hear your word. It is by grace and grace alone that we are entrusted with your word. And it's by grace and grace alone that we can receive your word and then share it with others. Lord, I pray that as we hear the word preached this morning, that our hearts would burn and that your spirit would change us and help us become more like you. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Starting in verse eight, chapter one, 2 Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is God's word. So we, we start our time with your first point, do not be ashamed. And verse eight starts with a therefore, and what it's referring back to particularly is verse seven, that we have a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So you have this spirit in you if you're a Christian of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, what does Paul mean by ashamed? I, th I think what he means is to back off from, to, to make the mission of entrusting the gospel to others as secondary. Let me repeat that, to, to back off from, to make the mission of entrusting the gospel to others as secondary. And, and I think we see that as you look at verses 15 through 18, particularly verse 15, it says, he says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So there's this news that, that Timothy's probably already aware of, right? But there's, there's this information that we see in this text that people that Timothy knows, that people Timothy has ministered to are turning away. What might you do if people are turning away? If people are like, yeah, no thanks, I don't want this anymore. Well, you might pull your gospel punches a bit. And maybe his zeal might begin to fade. As, as Mark mentioned, the, the fire that once burned brightly is now embers. Instead of pressing hard into his God, he might be tempted to coast. And Paul here is saying, hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't coast. Last night we saw Paul give Timothy three truths that are true about himself. And in this text, what he does as he reminds him to not be ashamed is he gives him four anchors that holds him to look upward. Four anchors. Here's your first anchor. He gives him God's calling. 
God's calling. Right in verse 9, it says, Jesus came to save us and call us to a holy calling. We just sang it. I love that song. What does it mean to have a holy calling? Well, it means, holy means to be set apart. And Paul particularly is referring to Timothy's specific calling that he was set apart for. In your outline on page 12, it says this from 1 Timothy 4. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, Timothy had a specific calling as a minister of the gospel publicly proclaiming God's word to the Ephesian church. And Paul is reminding Timothy, this was not something that was invented by you. This was not something that other men just came up to you and said, hey, this would be a good idea if you did this. He's saying, brother, God set you apart for this. You've been, a, you've been set apart for this calling. This is God's calling for you. So that's the first anchor, God's calling. The second anchor, God's qualifications. God's qualifications. Look at verse nine again. Not because of our works, but his own purpose and grace. Remember last night when Mark started talking about Timothy's spiritual heritage? You have grandmother Lois, mother Eunice. He's discipled by Paul. And he's saying, that's great. That's not why you're qualified. You're qualified by God's purpose and grace. His calling is given to him because Jesus' merits has given him, was given to him by grace. It is not because Timothy earned it. So the implication here, his calling to entrust the gospel to others is God's gift and purpose to him. So fan it into flame because it's God's. God qualifies him. God is the one who sets him apart for this. And then the third anchor, God's history. God's history. Again, in verse nine, he says that God's grace was given to us before the ages began. Why would he say this to Timothy? Well, he, he's reminding Timothy that his place in redemptive history has been the plan since the beginning of time. So like, it's not an accident that he is in Ephesus with this calling, with this ministry. And the fate of the world does not rest on Timothy's ministry to the Ephesian church. He is but one part, one very small part of God's plan from the beginning of time to eternity. You see, what Timothy has been called to, the mission that he is a part of, is bigger than anything he could have ever imagined. And not only was it set in motion before the ages began, but it culminates in the manifestation, the coming of Jesus Christ, which leads to the fourth anchor. You see, we have God's calling, God's qualifications, 
God's history and God's redemption. You get to verse 10. Which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. You see, this manifestation, Jesus' appearance as fully human and fully God, leads to his death on the cross, which he defeated sin and death through his resurrection once and for all. Why would he remind Timothy of this? See, what Paul is saying is he's saying, stop, stop looking out there. Stop looking at the haters. Like, look up. Look beyond yourself, buddy, to the grandness and glory of God, how he has worked all this in your life so that you might be used in this cosmic, redemptive narrative that God would bring his people from rebellion against him to committed devotion and glory for him. You live, and the dead will live, and they will praise God for eternity, and you get to be a part of it. Hallelujah. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of this God who has called you to this. Don't be ashamed of others who have been persecuted, slandered, imprisoned, because look at who you represent and who set you apart. Nothing is bigger than him, so don't coast. Don't coast because of persecution or ambition or quite simply because it's a little hard. Don't coast because if you coast, you're settling for far less than the glory that you have been set apart to labor for. I think if, if we are honest with ourselves, or at least if I'm honest with myself, I, I often long for the Christian life to be like a cruise ship. 24-hour service, around the clock, drink stands at every corner, buffets at every, every place you can find, sunbeds by the pool, and attendants who will serve you with drinks with an umbrella in it, and life is about me and my relaxation and my ease. Ah, oh, just coasting. That's not the Christian life, folks. See, the Christian life is not life on a cruise ship. It's life on a rescue ship. We're part of this grand rescue plan that God has rescued us. He has rescued us to be on and he has rescued us to be a part of. And we get to train others while being trained to follow the king and help others do likewise. That is our glorious calling. So don't be ashamed. Don't coast. If you remember, Mark mentioned last night that we want to answer the question, how does this encourage us for gospel ministry? Here's, here's the encouragement from this passage if you are a Christian here this morning, you too are set apart for a holy calling. Maybe you weren't sat down like Timothy was and had hands laid on you, but if you're a Christian, you have the calling to make disciples who make disciples. And so whether that means you do that with your future being an engineer, 
a teacher, PhD candidate, a counselor, a missionary, a pastor, somewhere else in the workforce, a stay-at-home mom, your mission, your calling, if you claim Christ crucified, is to entrust the gospel to others. That would entrust the gospel to others. That is what you have been set apart for. That is your calling if you are a Christian. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed. And friends, if, if, if you don't know Jesus here this morning, can I just encourage you? You might think, well, why, why would I wanna do this? Because it's the greatest mission that you could ever be a part of. That God is calling you to, to be rescued and then help others to be rescued. Do not be ashamed. But instead, share in suffering. That's our second point. Share in suffering. It's the contrast of do not be ashamed, but share in suffering. And I love in, in verse 12, Paul shares his own suffering. Why he endures. He says, I am not ashamed for I know who I have believed. I am convinced he is able to guard for that day. He, he trusts in God's provision and his power. That's why Paul is able to suffer because he knows God through Christ is guarding him and guarding the very thing he's been called to entrust. And he is inviting Timothy to do likewise. He, he's saying to his spiritual son, share in suffering with me. He's not saying, hey, you, you go do it. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm in prison. Be with me. Be with me in this. And, and what kind of suffering? I've already touched on it a little bit, but what kind of suffering? I, I think most of it has to do with people leaving. If you look at verse 15 again, all of Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. I want you to imagine this for a minute. People and leaders that you know, leaders that maybe you serve with, are leaving in droves where it can feel like everybody leaves, right? He says, all of Asia has left me. Doubt it's, it's all, but it, it probably feels like it. Like, could you imagine that? Could, could you imagine if that happened to your fellowship? Like, what would Timothy be thinking like, how would you be think, thinking? What would you be feeling? And yet Paul is telling Timothy that part of not being ashamed and sharing in suffering is embracing that people will leave you. And more importantly, they'll leave Jesus too. Don't be ashamed when that happens, but endure it. Share in it. And maybe, maybe you haven't experienced something quite like that, but I think many of us, we, we know, if, if you're in college, you know the phenomenon of fall involvement fairs, right? They're fun, right? Um, and you get a taste of this all throughout the process of fall involvement fairs. So what we often do for, for disciple makers at, at involvement fairs is we want to ask people to be a part of a Bible study, to be a part of a Christian fellowship. And what happens at those involvement fairs is you ask, hey, do you wanna be a part of a Bible study? And you get rejected in about 10 different ways. Most of the time they just walk by. They maybe speed up a little bit as you start to ask the question. But maybe you get that person that signs up and 
at least at our campuses, we have a little questionnaire. It's like, are you interested to talk about Jesus? Are you interested in Christian community? And it's like, they're all like, yes, I want to do it. And then you text them and you Instagram them and you message them. You'd send smoke signals their way. No answer. I just got ghosted. Right? And what happens either at the table or when that happens, you, you start to slink back a little bit. Your zeal begins to fade, right? Or what happens when you meet up with someone for a few times and they seem so invested and you're like, they want to study the Bible and they're excited about the fellowship and then all of a sudden they just drop off faith, faith the earth. Where'd they go? You even start to hear whispers of they, oh yeah, that person that was meeting with, they were weird. Fellowship was weird. What happens? We start to slink back a little bit. We lose our zeal. Or maybe you're training someone up and they were a freshman, now they're a sophomore and they're really excited and you're, you're telling them, this is what we do for outreach, this is how we lead a Bible study and then halfway through the semester they say, I loved this when it was about me and about how you were investing in me. But I don't know how I feel about you telling me to reach out to others. I think I'm done. Can any of you relate to that? To the shame? Did I do something wrong? Did I mess up? What does God think of me? Friends, that is not the time to question whether you did something wrong. That's the time to remember that you are called to share in suffering. Endure it. Embrace it. Share in it. Some of the best work that God will ever do in you is if you trust him when you are rejected for the sake of Christ. So don't let rejection or hardship or God forbid awkwardness be the reason for slowing down. Embrace it. Embrace hardship for the sake of entrusting the gospel to others and be encouraged that your work and your faith are not in vain. In fact, the very suffering that you go through, the very rejection that you endure may actually be the catalyst you need for God to fan your faith into flame. So embrace it. Share in that. Pray with one another as you endure it. Share together in it. So don't be ashamed. Share in suffering. And we do this through persevering by God's means of grace. This is how this passage equips us for gospel ministry is these last three things we see under this point. So first, follow this pattern of sound words. That's right in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of sound words. What does Paul mean by that? Follow the pattern of sound words. Follow the same sound words that Paul has passed down to Timothy. The sound words of scripture, the gospel, the whole redemptive history. Know these words and follow them. Right? The Bible's not an academic textbook points us to God and how to image God and how he redeems us and rescues us. 
God's word and applying it is like throwing a log onto the fire. You want to fan that gift, that, the gift of God into flame? Follow the sound words of scripture. Study and apply. We are encouraged in gospel ministry to study and apply God's word ourselves. So before you leave here this week, can I encourage you to set a pattern to study God's word this summer? Make sure you ask someone to help you in that. Whether it's one of your staff or a, a fellow student. And then a question I want you to write down, what's, what's one way you need to follow the pattern of sound words? What's one area that God is calling you to grow in, to apply God's word? What's one way you need to follow the pattern of sound words to apply God's word? So we follow the pattern of sound words. Second, we guard the good deposit. It's right in verse 14. What does it mean to guard the good deposit? Well, there's a couple things we have to ask here. One is, what is the good deposit? I believe it's the sound words. The sound words that he has passed down to Timothy, the the gospel and and the scriptures. So what does it mean to guard that then? I don't know, when I think of guarding, I think, well, I've got the key to the vault. Let's throw it away. Nobody open it, right? That's not what he means. To guard is to invest. To guard is to invest or to entrust it to others. I just want to caveat that for a minute. Guarding is not a lot of conversions. That'd be nice. It'd be nice to have a lot of conversions. That's that's a great thing. But that is not guarding. Guarding is investing in people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Training up disciples, which we're going to find out more more about tonight as we continue in 2 Timothy. I I listened to a a personal finance podcast, and uh, the host shared a story of when he was in high school. And he, he learned about his pathway to becoming a millionaire. And here's what it was. If you start at the age 18, if you start investing $100 a month in the S&P 500 index, you'll become a millionaire by the time you're age 65. Now, why am I sharing that? I'm not sharing that so you'll go and all all open up Roth IRA after this. That's not the point. That's just money. Imagine what happens if you invest the gospel in people from age 18 to the time you die. I want you to imagine for a minute what it'll look like in glory. When you're in heaven and people come to you and say, hey, you know that guy that you invested in? They entrusted the gospel to me. And just imagine the stories that you share throughout eternity because we're going to have all eternity to talk about them. Of people who have been impacted, not because you invested in them, but because you invested in someone else who invested in someone else who invested in someone else. Can you imagine the ripple effect of your investment now and if you do that for the rest of your life? Friends, this is an amazing opportunity. It's the greatest investment opportunity you could ever make. 
So invest the gospel. Do not squander it. Guard it. Guard the good deposit you have been entrusted with. And we do it not by our own strength, but by God dwelling in us who gives us the spirits of power, love, and self-control. That's how we are equipped to guard the good deposit. Not because we're awesome, but because the spirit of God dwells in us. I want to speak specifically to rising juniors and seniors for a minute, if I can encourage you. Please understand that you have all you need to start an intentional relationship with someone else centered on Christ, centered on his word. Please guard what has been entrusted by passing it down. Your time is now. You don't need to wait anymore. Start doing it. You have the spirit of God in you. If you're a rising sophomore, can I encourage you, if you have not already sought out investment from someone else, would you? Would you start to seek out discipleship? Would you start preparing now to guard what is being entrusted to you so that as you get older, you can faithfully pass it on to the next wave of students? For, for our alumni or soon-to-be alumni, can I, can I encourage you to check in on those who remain and to pray for them, but then ask the Lord how you can continue guarding the gospel in your next mission field, whether it be vocational ministry or the workforce, because the reality is while your college career is done, the mission is not. You have more to invest. You have the gospel. So invest it till, till the end of your life. We follow the pattern of sound words. We guard the good deposit. Last, we do it with the refreshment of gospel laborers. You know, we get to the end of this passage and there's this curious reference to this Onesiphorus. It's like, who? Who is this guy? And, and why is he mentioning him to Timothy? Paul, Paul was in prison at that time, prisoners would have needed companions to come and give them food and other things to provide his tangible needs. And I want you to think of Timothy here. He's heard and knows that so many have left Paul, and yet Paul reminds him of a brother who refreshed him. Now, Onesiphorus is, he isn't an apostle. He's not someone well-known. He's only mentioned in this letter. He's mentioned in this letter twice, and then he's mentioned nowhere else in the scriptures. He's just a guy. Paul specifically mentions that he's an encouragement to him. And it's a reminder to Timothy that while, okay, you see these leaders leaving and you're seeing all these different people leaving in droves. Remember, there are still people out there that will refresh you. So look out for them. In the, a few years ago, I was in a season where it took every ounce of energy and prayer to even get on campus. And the wind was out of my sails. My fire was embers. And the Lord sent a, a young laborer, a young man uh, to our area. And I, at the time I thought, well, this is great. I'm, I'm excited to train him up. But what I really need is a, is a peer or maybe like a, a spiritual mentor to help me through this. 
But in reality, what I needed was to see a young man live out his faith. Because when I saw him live out his faith, and when I saw his joy, and when I saw his zeal, it was like throwing five logs on the fire. When I felt weary, I saw his joy. When I felt faithless, I saw his faith. And it just completely changed me. That picture of faithful, joyful ministry refreshed me deeply and unexpectedly. My encouragement to you is this. Look out and praise God for gospel laborers who refresh you. And particularly look out for the unexpected. My friends, this mission, this calling is not just an individual pursuit. It's a communal one. And he's not always gonna use the people you think you need. So look out for people that God sends your way who will encourage and refresh you and keep the flame burning. And for those of you, for most of you, you know, I really appreciated Mark. He mentioned how much we, we, we love you and we care about you. And I just so echo that. But can I also encourage you all that you often put the wind in our sails when we see your faith, when we see you take risks, when we see you lead discipleships. Like I cannot tell you how often seeing you all live out your faith, bring, I, I drive home and I get home and I'm just beaming from ear to ear <laughs> because I see the work that God is doing in you. So look out for those who might refresh you. As we conclude, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that I had invested a lot of my time in trusting the gospel to one freshman. And I, I remember graduating and thinking I had failed. I was like, this is, this is it. This is who I invested in and I've left him alone. <laughs> and, uh, you know... I don't know what's going to happen to Muhlenberg. A few years later, I was here at Focus, and a young man came up to me, and he stopped me. He was like, hey, I heard that you're the reason why I'm in the Muhlenberg Fellowship. And I was like, huh? I, I, I've never met you. Who are you? And he he saw, I didn't say that out loud. That's what I was thinking. And he saw my skepticism, and he's like, no, no, no let, me, let me help you. With something. You discipled that guy who discipled in this guy who discipled this guy and they're discipling me. You're the reason why I'm in the fellowship. Now it's like God is the reason why he's in the fellowship but the fact remains my feeble efforts to invest the gospel paid dividends. Imagine with me who will be here in this room five years from now, 10 years from now, 25 years from now because you invested the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much. And I pray as we think deeply on these truths 
that we would be not just motivated to do the work of ministry, but God, that you would remind us that you are the one who has called us, you are the one who's empowered us to do it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.